But the other thing that happened was that a bunch of the artists that were in amongst this crew in the 40s in New York go off in it. This is where all the new printmaking departments are established in universities like Iowa, Yale, St. Louis, WashU, everywhere, Wisconsin. And they're all they're all hater people. So all of you who out there who have uh-huh. gotten your degrees from Madison or whatever, you can trace your heritage back to the grandfather hater. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. Each week, I chat with artists who use print-based media to do something beyond the expected. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Tilsombrano. Together, we speak to printmakers around the globe about their practice and passions in the world of printmaking. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products which has been a leading innovator and manufacturer of printmaking products for over 50 years. Speedball's speed screens answer the call to have an easy-to-use way to screen print no matter what your experience level. Whether printing at home, studio, or classroom, these ready-to-use mesh screens allow you to create permanent photographic stencils without the need to mix emulsion or coat a screen. All you need is your design and you're ready to print. Pick up the Speedball Screens Kit for the most affordable way to get all the materials necessary to print your next masterpiece. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Anne Schaefer. Anne is a print historian, enthusiast, advocate, and host of the wonderful printmaking podcast, Plate Mark. We talk about her research and how all roads lead back to William Hader, the Baltimore Fine Print Fair, what it's like to be on the front lines of print education, and her best advice for people starting out in the arts. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to answer the question, how many printmaking podcast hosts does it take to hold your attention? With Anne Schaefer. Hi, Anne. How's it going? Hey, Miranda. So great to be with you. So great to have you. I'm really delighted to talk to you. I always feel kind of an instant kindred spirit when I've got someone on for a chat who is a bit like me and that they're not necessarily primarily the doer or the maker in prints, but we are just still completely in love with the medium and the history and being champions and cheerleaders in all of the spaces we can think of. So I'm really excited to to talk to someone else sort of in that role in our print world and, and that we're going to have a nice chat about doing it. I think we're both... Uh, ki- creators in our own way, Miranda, because, you know, there's an art to this as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I I definitely want to make sure that we have a chance to talk about your experiences as a printmaking podcaster. I'm really excited. I think you and Jamal Barber are are the only two other podcasters I've had on the show. And I always definitely feel that connection, the joy and the pain of our our creative practice of podcasting. So before we get into all of that, would you please introduce yourself. And my classic questions are for my guests, which is just saying who you are, where you are, and what you do. Sure. My name is Anne Schaefer, and I live in Baltimore, Maryland, which is the land of the Piscataway Conoy people, in case you want to know. I am an independent curator, and I specialize in prints and printmaking. I had a 
long career in museums as a curator of prints, drawings, and photographs, but now I'm independent. So my projects lately have been a podcast on printmaking called Plate Mark, and also the birth of a new print fair in Baltimore, the Baltimore Fine Art Print Fair. I definitely had some FOMO around the that fair that actually just closed recently, I believe, but seeing some of my favorite printmakers there and print people there. And I've always had a, a very soft spot in my heart for Baltimore. I've, I've traveled there several times. I think it's a beautiful city. The city with the park benches that just say greatest city in America. Like I've always loved that with all my heart. Seeing oh, that. It's a little aspirational. But. It's just, it's just <laughs> so ballsy. I just like, you know what? You know what? We're Baltimore. Greatest city in America, which I, I do love. So I hope to hopefully next time that fair rolls around, I come hope you and do. visit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. it was it was really great. Baltimore's Baltimore's a funny place. It, people forget about it. You know, it's tucked right between DC mm-hmm. and Philly and New York and Boston. And you know, we're one of those East Coast cities, but we're a heck of a lot cheaper to live here, and we've got culture and grit and charm and everything in between. So absolutely, yeah, beautiful harbor. It's I, I feel the same way that I've always felt like part of the reason why I think I have such a soft spot is that it it does have that little underdog like you're you're you know between the New York and and DC but it's actually its own spectacular place so I hope I get to come visit it is true yep so but where did you grow up and what role did art play in that part of your life I grew up outside of New York City in Connecticut uh, my mom was a painter, struggling painter, as they all are. Most of them are. 99% mm-hmm. of them are. <laughs> and our home museum was the Met. We would drive into the city and, you know, you can park under the, there's a garage down there. You can park in there and pay for it for the day. And we'd wander the Upper East Side to go to the Whitney and wherever else. And the Met, obviously, and the Guggenheim. And I wasn't really thinking as a kid, gee, I really want to do that thing. Be an, I didn't even know a curator was a job I could have, actually. It wasn't until mm-hmm. college that I was like, oh, that looks interesting. So yeah, the museum part of me began in college. I had a, the school I went to is in Ohio. It's called the College of Worcester and it had a fine arts semester in New York. So I had classmates who were working with the Poetry Guild and the Channel 5 News and the Puppet Theater and, you know, the gallery and whatever else. Uh I somehow managed to get myself an internship at the Whitney with Barbara Haskell, the curator who was working on a Ralston Crawford show at the time. So I was the intern there for a semester and I but my second day, sitting in the office, talking to her assistant, Deborah Leviton, I said, my God, this is it. I never wanted to do anything else. That was it. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. yeah I was very lucky. <laughs> so then where did printmaking work its way into your well, life? That, yeah, that was, a, that was a long time coming, really. I wanted to be Barbara Haskell, really, is what happened. <laughs> uh-huh. And I wanted to go into American paintings, and I was really enamored with the early 20th century crew that was with Stieglitz, Hopper, and Demuth, and, you know, those people, Sheeler. Mm-hmm. And I just, I went to grad school like most of us did, and when I got out, I got a job at the National Gallery in Washington in the old, ma- in prints and drawings, in the old master drawings mm-hmm. department. Mm-hmm. You know, I was the cataloger. I spent my entire day in the storeroom cataloging things, which was great fun, and I learned a lot. And so I started backing into prints because I landed this job randomly. Like I knew I wanted to be a curator and I wanted to be in American paintings. And I thought, well, you know, there's probably some watercolors in there. Maybe they kind of feel like painting. 
somehow. And then I kind of uh-huh. started learning about prints. But it really wasn't until I got to Baltimore, to the Baltimore Museum of Art in 2005, when my friend True Ludwig, who I co-host Plate Mark with, came with his class from the Maryland Institute College of Art for a history of prints class that I hosted and pulled all of the works out from Durr to yesterday and showed them, you know, it's like 80 prints every time they came. So it was a lot and I learned a ton and, you know, it was sort of a uh, never look back. I think that's so cool that True was there right at the inception of falling for the medium. And now you all have the this other project that you're doing together. And I've listened to a few of the episodes, particularly as as we mentioned off air, you know, I did my MA and that Reformation era printmaking. And so of course, dove right into those episodes and you can hear True's enthusiasm for that history. And so I'm not surprised that it, it lit a fire in you as well or from, from hearing it and getting to, of course, touch and hold prints in person is such a special part of them, that way that you, they're so intimate that you you can hold them in your hand and pull them up to your face. And it's just so different from a massive oil on the wall. Yeah, yeah. very true. I, when I met True and started helping him with this class and I just kind of soaked everything up like a sponge. And, you know, he didn't realize it at the time, but I knew nothing. (laughs) 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 And he's a maker too. So he comes to the history of it with a maker's perspective. And Mm -hmm. so he can say to the students, you know, this is how Buho got that thing and that weird plate with the weird owl and the blah, blah, blah. And I just, I just listen. I just listen, take it all Mm -hmm. in. Mm-hmm. So what do you think it was about printmaking that, that drew you in? I mean, obviously, as we spoke, True's enthusiasm is clearly contagious. I <laughs> caught it again just listening to your Plate Mark podcast. But for you personally, what do you think it went from just other than being like, okay, this is the time that I go and pull out these prints for these students to I'm going to become an expert in Atelier 17. I think it was my first love is intaglio, etching, engraving, all of that stuff. And I just love the tactility of it that you don't get with most drawing and most watercolor, whatever. I just, I love the sort of 3D, the three-dimensionality of the sheet. And when you flip it over, you see the indentations of all the Mm -hmm. pressure. And it's just, it's so freaking cool. And I, just, I think it was when I started focusing on Atelier 17 and Hader and everybody who worked around him that I just was like, you know, this is the, this is the, I don't know. It's like, it's like learning a whole new, it's like when you were a kid and you watched soap operas, you know, you had to learn the whole situation and all those people or like my husband's a, <laughs> a political geek. Like he knows who all the senators are and who works for who. And, you know, it's like a whole, just learning a whole new world. Like, like I'm a fan girl of the print world. <laughs> Mm, I think there's really something in there, that ability or that that particular thing that printmaking has where it's like you cracked the door open on a grand ballroom and you just peek inside and you realize that I maybe didn't even mean to open this door, but my God, look what's behind it. And I think that feeling of that expansiveness and almost a a hidden history, I think particularly people who have academic or curious minds often really fall in love with that because it, it does feel it's a little bit not mainstream, but there's so much there. And it reveals itself as you do your research and as you go through and as you realize how things are connected and people are connected and, you know, what artists use printmaking in what way. It, it really is quite satisfying, I think, to be a researcher for those reasons. Yeah, no, I like your your idea of the peeking through the door. I always likened it to a little speed bump. Like I have to get 
people over the speed bump of yeah. understanding the basics of the technical parts. And then you get to the content and who knew who and everything goes back to hater and all of that yeah. stuff. Yeah, of it's, a, it's a whole new world. I just, I don't know. I just think it's great. Do you think that that is sort of the the main barrier that does keep printmaking maybe outside of the mainstream understanding. I've worked in commercial galleries for over 10 years now, and I've dealt in prints for most of that. And the amount of misconceptions are just complete and, and utter just ignorance. It's, just, it's like not even something people knew existed in the world. Is that coming from, I mean, obviously we're in a capitalist society and there's economic factors about how prints are, are not valued monetarily as much, many different things. But it was interesting to hear you, you to point out specifically the educational barrier of that, like, I don't understand maybe what I'm looking at. Is, is that, have you found that in your time as a print educator to be a fairly consistent speed bump? Yes. Yeah. When I was at the Baltimore Museum of Art, I was in charge of the study room. So all the classes that came in, I hosted. Any visitors that came in, I would set them up with 25 boxes of Rembrandts or who, whatever they were trying to look at. And the department also had a support group called the Print, Drawing, and Photograph Society. And this is a society that had been in action for over 50 years. They had a long history in Baltimore, and there are lots of collectors who now collect prints because of their participation in this group and whatever. And even after me standing there for 12 years talking to these people, someone would say, is that etching or engraving? Mm -hmm. And so I think just keeping it all straight is hard for folks. And once you get past the intaglio term, there's like 25,000 other things that you can do within that, under that umbrella. Yeah. <laughs> umbrella. So yeah, I think it's, I think once people get confident in their knowledge in that way, that they can let go of worrying about it because maybe that's part of it. Like they don't want to mm. seem like they don't mm -hmm. know somehow. And then finally they get to content. Yeah. I think it, with printmaking, I've sometimes thought of it in terms of, it's like a card game. If someone sits you down and tries to explain the rules linearly to Gin Rummy, it just sounds completely complicated, but it's truly one of the most simple card games. But once you do it, you then you have to eventually, at some point, you just have to say, look, let's just play a hand. And then people get it. And I think there's something about printmaking that is a bit akin to that, where if I'm trying to explain etching, engraving, mesotent, lithograph, screen print, and woodcut to someone standing in me in a gallery, we're not going to get anywhere. We're not, it's going to sound so boring and so technical and so Baroque. <laughs> but if I just, if I just drag them over to a, a, a let's say a, 20 layer Judy Chicago lithograph from Landfall Editions and just let them fall into it. That's going to do something. You just like, you like, you just need to play a hand and then you'll understand, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. The other element, I think, is obviously this idea of originality and multiplicity right. and the addition. And I think people just don't, they have a hard time accepting the way that we've decided to describe what original means, blah, 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 yeah. that, that this is an intentional multiple thing. And the terminology, Ben and I talk, Ben Levy, who hosted series one with me on Platemark, where we talked about all sorts of things about museums and the print ecosystem. We, we talked about this problem of the nomenclature that mm -hmm. you press print on your computer to print your yeah. document so that there, there's a term problem. <laughs> there is, there is a term problem. And we don't really have uh, a le stamp or a grabador, you know, in our language that is, this is distinctive. This is its own body of 
work and and that it lives, as you say, in this ecosystem. I think that that's really difficult too. There was there was one guy I'll never forget when I was working at Davidson Galleries in Seattle, and that it twenty thousand works on paper, and we've got we'd have everything from Durs, like lesser Durs, you know, we weren't, we weren't Sotheby's, but like a lesser Dur up until incredible contemporary artists. And this guy came in once and he just was just doubling down on the fact that he thought I was scamming everyone. Like he just, he was just like, he was just like, no way, man, these, this is a scam. These aren't original. You're, you're trying to trick people. And it was, it was really bizarre. And so I eventually said something like, so you're telling me that you're the hill you're dying on here is that a 3000 year old history <laughs> and with people from Rembrandt to Warhol is all part of a grand conspiracy to get people to buy art that's not original? And he was like, yes. <laughs> like, I was like, wow. wow. Oh, God. <laughs> but, but I think that they're, they're, for some people, original and unique are synonyms, and you can't tell them different. You can't. And and I would even, and I could even go so far as to argue that addition doesn't mean non-unique either. But I have also thought in my own armchair musings as well, and I'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on it, that there might be something about particular to American culture and our individuality that makes prints much less understood here than they are in Europe or Asia. Yeah, I, I, yeah that might be. I hadn't thought of it that way. That that sounds mm. like an extra bonus episode on Playmark Miranda. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, I think. I mean, it's all a false hierarchy, really. The idea mm-hmm. that unique is better than more than one of a thing. But I fall into that trap too. Like, I would rather have the the thing that the artist drew directly on, as opposed to the thing mm. that went through the mediation of the printing press. And it's all because that's what I was raised to believe. It's all. Mm-hmm. It's false. It's all false. Yeah. It's all it's all in there. It's it's it is interesting. I've got like a, a Lori Hogan lithograph, but I also went out and bought a tiny oil. Why did I feel like I needed the oil, Miranda? Are you a traitor to your cause? You know, like. <laughs> but it's I I think that the, in the best place, each media is seen as a different tool in in artists' toolkit to translate their ideas and hopes and feelings and message out into the world and that lith- lithography plays a different role and does a has a different aesthetic outcome plays a different part in the ecosystem of the artist market than an oil will and it's just apples and oranges much more than like so as you say a, a hierarchy yeah right but and the other thing that that when i was working pretty deep in hater and atelier 17 the whole overarching point of doing a big show about it was to make this illustration clear that artists work in print and they work in painting or whatever else they're doing and it crisscrosses all the way through and one informs the other it's not prints are held to the side but they actually are rather integrated and i wanted to make that point about you know everyone's Mm. looking at women artists and mid-career people and you know underserved and underdiscovered or whatever, that prints are the same. Like the, we got to get prints into the the, the column of yeah. the canon, right? The new canon. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a, a great segue into my next question for you, which was going to be to have you talk a little bit about Hater and, and your work and, and sort of how you came to it and, and why it lit a fire of interest in you and sort of who he was and why the studio was significant. And I'm sure 
you could fill a whole series of podcasts about it. But because, you know, we do have this opportunity to to have an expert on this important studio in my studio closet, I wouldn't want to pass over just doing kind of a, a plug for for why he was important and, and why you loved to study the work. Yeah. What happened at the BMA, my colleague, Rena Hoisington, brought into the collection a print by a woman named Nina Negri, who was Argentinian and was working with Hayter in Paris in the 1930s. And I just thought, what? what's that? Like, it was totally Mm. cool. It was this weird, surrealist, lunar landscape, looked like maybe a skull of a cow or something. And I started digging in the collection to see what else was there to pull together a small show for some future day. And it just led me down this crazy road. So Hayter, Stanley William Hayter, was a British artist. He was born in 1901 and died in 1988. Oh, wow. That is seeing a chunk of the (laughs) history right there. <laughs> right, exactly. Wow. And when you say everybody goes back to Hater, well, there's a reason because he taught thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Yeah. So he started this small shop in Paris in 1927, 28. Christina Weil is really the person we need to talk to about codifying. The records are terrible. So trying to find oh, out exactly okay. the date is impossible. He started the, it was really a very informal thing. Two women artists, a Canadian woman and an American woman who were friends approached him and said, hey, can you teach us how to do what you're doing, which was engraving. He was engraving after having learned it from another artist named Joseph Hescht. Nobody was doing engraving. It was that thing that was used for reproductive engravings way back in the day, and it just had fallen off with photography and also probably because it's a pain in the ass to do, right? It's hard. <laughs> yeah. Hard, yeah. hard, hard work, right? So he agreed if they could find a few other people to, you know, form a small class or whatever that he would teach them. And it wasn't until five years into this enterprise from 27, 28 into the early 30s that they actually named the workshop Atelier 17, Studio 17, after the number on the street of the building they moved into after five years on Rue Campagne Premier. So that always indicates to me that there was this sort of unintentional start to this thing, which became <laughs> yeah. this crazy thing. So he he's obviously, and I don't know about what this points to your experience in Australia, couldn't be more different. If you're in Paris in the 30s, everybody's sitting around, they do a go in the afternoon, smoking away and drinking their coffee, mm-hmm. right? Everybody knows each other. So his neighbor down the hall is, you know, Alexander Calder has a studio there and Giacometti's <laughs> down the other hall and he's friends with, you know, Andre Breton, like everyone's there. So yeah. he- Starts welcoming all of those people into the shop. One Miro, you name it, they were all there. Picasso, you know. And they just, Hayter didn't really want to, he was the teacher, but he didn't want to be known as that. He wanted to be a facilitator so that if you were sitting at the table next to Miro and he was having an issue, you would help him figure it out or he would help you figure something out. And in addition, you were supposed to be able to do it from carving to printing. Like you didn't walk into Corier with your plate or your drawing and say, here, make this thing for me. You had mm-hmm. to do every, every last thing. So it was really? a very different, okay. yeah. So it was yeah, a really not different like model. collaborative printmaking, but like. Not at all. You're going to be mean, a printmaker. Yeah. It wasn't, mm-hmm. I mean, it was collaborative between people, but it wasn't right. a collaborative in the way that we think of it now with the master printer at Gemini taking your idea and making it happen. So hundreds of people, many surrealists, and he exhibits with the surrealists, but he's not a 
an actual member of surrealism that, you know, he had to sign a book or something. And Breton was apparently a pain <laughs> in the butt and they didn't get along at the end. So in any case, but all of these incredible people are there. So when in 1939, when France and Germany enter war, he packs up as many prints as he can. He leaves all the presses and all the plates, and he goes back to England. And by the next summer, he's teaching in America, because mm. that's where everybody went. England is not safe from the war either. So yeah. he ends up reopening the stu- crazy studio at the New School for Social Research in 1940. And the New York iteration of that studio, of Atelier 17, lasts until 1955. And the most remarkable thing happens, which is really logical, but people forget that when he set it up in New York, all of his European friends who've also run from the war come because mm-hmm. they are comfortable there and they can, you know, he spoke fluent French. I'm sure he spoke Spanish. There's this international sort of thing going on. And then all of the American artists start going, well, what's that all about? Let's go see. So people like Motherwell show up and Uh Louise Nevelson and Louise Bourgeois and Franz Klein and all these people come. And so there's this huge mix of people and you could literally be sitting at your table carving away next to one Miro. Yeah. I mean, it's nuts. That's a a wonderful image. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so he, you know, he goes back to Paris, reopens it there. It's still open as under another name, but it's the same studio, same people as Hayter had established back in Paris after the war. But the other thing that happened was that a bunch of the artists that were in amongst this crew in the 40s in New York go off in it. This is where all the new printmaking departments are established in universities like Iowa, Yale, St. Louis, WashU, everywhere, Wisconsin. And they're all, they're all hater people. So all of you who out there who have uh-huh. gotten your degrees from Madison or whatever, you've got a, an H number. You can trace your heritage back to the grandfather, hater. I love that idea of an H number. I've never heard that before. But there's something that's so touching about that. Like we're all in this printmaking family tree. You get your little <laughs> number to show like, okay, like how, where, where do you go back to granddad? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And when I was at the BMA I and I started doing some really deep research, it's, you know, the idea started as a small show and then it grew and grew and grew. And we were working toward a catalog. And one of the things I really wanted to do was build an online family tree so that you could enter yourself oh, and say, uh-huh. I was at Iowa here. And I'd learned from, I forget who was there, Husky, and, you know, on yeah. and on. So you can you can all trace your own histories. So that but that that never never happened to be that never happened. Okay, <laughs> no. well put that in the in the queue for for future. Yeah, projects. I mean I've I've got all the data and I just need a grant from some nice person to help me do it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hint hint. Yeah, <laughs> the the hater family tree. Well, that would be really fun. Oh, that's yeah. wonderful. And so, was this when you were at at Baltimore? Baltimore, Baltimore Museum of Art. Mm -hmm. Okay. Another part of the project that was really fun was I got to go to the atelier in Paris several times and meet with them and see them work. And the last time I went there, Ben, Levy, and True, actually, the three of us were there together because we were all working on this, the catalog for the show. And so we went to the atelier. Mrs. Hader, who's still alive, Mrs. Hader brought over one of Hader's late plates to have Hector Sonier, who's the director of the current iteration of the atelier, print it for us so we could videotape it and photograph it and oh see gosh. how this whole quote unquote viscosity thing works. And it was really, it was something. It was really great. What an incredible experience. Yeah, that's it so was. Nice. <laughs> yeah, that's so nice. So 
with all of this knowledge and, and passion that you obviously have around Hater in the studio, do you have any projects on the horizon that you want to that you want to shout out or you kind of are maybe looking for collaborators with? Is there anything that's in the works particularly? The last eight months of my life has been working towards getting the the inaugural Baltimore Fine Art Print Fair off the yeah, shelf and into reality. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I honestly I would love to have somebody say we need to we need to do the big hater show, the the anniversary, yeah. uh, the hundred year anniversary of the formation of the whole thing, and twenty seven or twenty eight is you know nigh, and it's it should be time. He deserves the credit, and he should be seen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but that's that's an idea still. Totally. I'm just trying to think. Who do I know at museums who would be friendly to this idea? And I'm sure you have more museum collections than I, having been in the in the business. But there are the Albuquerque Museum of Art just did this incredible printer's proof exhibition. I don't know if it came across your radar, but it was an exhibition dedicated to find the the master printers, the collaborative printers. Yeah. Well, you know who you know who really should do it is James Wen at the Chazen, because you know, they did the first mm. big show of the Atelier back in 1977 when Joanne Moser had just finished her dissertation, which was the first codification of the lists of who was there and all of that good info was finally written down. And she yeah. got to talk to most of them. They were still alive at that point. Do you want me to leave that part in so you can publicly shame James? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure James knows it, but yeah, I, I'm going to send him an email. <laughs> Hello, you James. Should. Hi, James. Yeah. yeah. Knock, knock, knock. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm hoping that we can speak a little bit too as well to your time at the Baltimore Museum of Art and kind of like your role there and really specifically talking to young art folks who are thinking about museum work because this making a living in the art world is has many different paths and you can do commercial galleries, which is what I literally fell into by just happening to be hired at one out of grad school or, or museum work or auction houses or working as a working artist or, I mean, it's running an art fair. I mean, all of it is in there, but maybe speak specifically to your experience doing National Gallery and then Baltimore? So my first job as a curator was at the National Gallery. As I said, assistant curator, old master drawings. I was basically the cataloger. There are a lot of curators there. There are about 50 curators at the National Gallery, which is a lot. The good news is because you're a federal employee, your pay is triple what you'll get anywhere else. So that's Mm -hmm. good. But the bad news is that you feel like you can't leave. So (laughs) people stay for a long time. It's hard to get in. i feel like I was just about the only person I ever knew who left, not mm-hmm. by retiring, you know? Yeah. Um, and we relocated to Baltimore because I was starting a family with my husband and we couldn't afford a house in DC. Like it was very simple. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. So the other thing about the National Gallery, because there's so many curators, you, you're in your own shoebox of what you do. I never had a show of my own. I wasn't encouraged to have in relationships with any collectors. You know, that was the mm, purview mm-hmm. of the chief curator. He loved that part. That's what he did. We weren't encouraged to go to any print fairs. You know, it was all like I was there to catalog and take care of the collection. Okay, yeah. fine. So then when I got to, <laughs> I, the trade-off was I got to Baltimore and it took a couple of years to get to the right position, but I finally made it into the print department. And the good news there is that because the staff is so small, there's 10 curators, Mm. almost the same size collection, not in print. The print collection there is about 60 
I think they've revised the number, 62,000 things. And at the National Gallery, it's about 100,000 things. Mm. It's a lot, but it's still a lot yeah, to take care it's of. It's a lot right? no matter how you slice yeah, it. It's yeah, <laughs> It's a lot. But at Baltimore, I was doing the cataloging if it had to be done. I was hosting all of the classes that came into the study room. I was managing the print fair in its last three iterations. I was going to all the print fairs in New York and acquiring things and presenting and talking and touring and doing exhibitions and courier trips to Australia, you know, I think professionally found my metier, I guess, like I found my public speaking voice there because I hadn't really done any at the National Gallery. Mm -hmm. I because I was teaching classes three or four times a week, I got very comfortable talking in front of people and have no hesitation about it ever. I'm not shy, as you can tell. And but I that's the piece of advice that I give to most young people, like get over your fear of public speaking immediately. Yeah. Like you have to be able to talk confidently in front of people, no matter if you know anything about art history or not. <laughs> I've always found that was such a fascinating part of the art world that no one tells you about is that you are a weirdly public figure in the art world where you were you were seen as a figure of authority and you're gonna be invited to go stand up in front of a podium weirdly regularly as either if you're a working artist and you're giving artist talks, if you're a gallerist and you get in- invited to go talk to a grad class about getting into galleries, or certainly if you're in a museum. And it's, it is something that people don't warn anyone about, but you really are kind of brought out as like a, a show pony. Artifact. A show pony, exactly. Absolutely. If, if anytime someone is like, hey, we need some we need some culture in this event. We'll go call the museum, you know? I don't yep. know. No, yep, that's right. Yes. No, yeah. we, we used to refer to ourselves as show ponies because they would say, now the curators will get up and talk you know, for two and a half minutes about whatever. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Put on your fancy ribbons and yeah, exactly. It's pretty so much funny. your curatorial black, you know, I think that's the, I think you're right. People don't tell you that that's a huge part of the job and that you will do yourself a huge favor if you are not nervous about it because it can be really anxiety provoking. I think that's, yeah, yeah, that's sort of my major piece of advice. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Yeah. And so you'd mentioned the Baltimore Print Fair. And so it, it it had existed and then it trailed off and then you you breathed life into it again, coming to a close a few weeks ago. I'd love it if you could talk about the process of doing a print fair and maybe even a little bit what print fairs are and why they're important in case someone's listening who didn't know that print fairs were a thing. I didn't know print fairs were a thing until I started working at Davidson and someone told me I had to go to a print fair. Yeah, sure. Print fairs are the nicer version of a contemporary art fair. (laughs) (laughs) Print people are the nicest people. So you can go into a print Mm -hmm. fair and you will find however many booths. We had 22 booths at the Baltimore Fine Art Print Fair two weeks ago. And in each booth is a usually a single entity. It could be Gemini as a publishing house. It could be Dolan Maxwell as a gallery. It could be a maker or not maker. And you can look at, to your heart's content, at whatever they've brought. You can engage the person who's standing there about the works, about the process, or about the artists, or about the whole thing. And I... I've always felt like they were equally educational as a way to break into collecting art because the price points are low because there's multiples, et cetera, et cetera. Like we all know that part, but it's like the gateway to collecting. So we had some vendors there who had works on the wall for a hundred bucks. Some, there were a couple $50, there was a couple $25 prints and there were $20,000 prints, you know, that ran the Mm -hmm. gamut. 
So it goes back to what I was saying about inserting prints into the canon. Like this, this is all, you know, big name artists, lesser known name artists. They're all making prints and you can have one. Like you could, there were Rauschenberg prints at Jim Kempner's booth for $200. Mm. I saw several people walk off with, right. You could have a Rauschenberg. Yeah. Like what could be better? So the print fair, let me back up into the smidge of the history of it at the Baltimore Museum of Art back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, early 80s, they had something called the sales and rental gallery, which was a place you could go. It was manned by volunteers from the women's committee, the, you know, the wives of the titans of industry or whatever, they were all volunteers. Mm -hmm. And they had this situation where they would go up to New York and pick from Matthew Marks or whoever, Sonneband editions, prints. And they would come down and you could walk in there and rent one or buy one. And I can't tell you how many people in Baltimore have said to me, the first thing I've ever bought was through the sales and rental gallery. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So for whatever reason, in the late 80s, it was shuttered. I don't know what happened. I, I don't know that I've ever seen a piece of paper that described what happened, but something happened. And because it shuttered, the print department decided to start a fair. So the two curators in the print department at that point were Jay Fisher, who retired, well, I think three years ago, he was there for 45 years, and Jan Howard, who's now the chief curator at the RISD Museum up in Providence. So they started this print fair in 1990, and it was annual until 2000 for 10 years. And then they went to every other year because it's a lot of work. So then it was every other year until 2017 when I was the director of the last one. There was a three-year gap one time because of renovations. So we got off off of the even numbers and onto the odd numbers. So I directed the last three, 2012, 2015, and 2017. And we had 20 vendors each time. When I took it on in 2012, Ben Levy was working with me in the department. And so we shuffled and rethought the whole focus of it and tried to get more of the makers there, the print publishers, shops uh-huh. that had you know their own thing as opposed to the secondary market dealers. Of course, we had a few of those like Jim Kempner. But it really, we were really trying to align the fair with the museum's mission as an educational institution so that you could go there and talk to Jim Kempner or Peter Pettengill from Wingate Studio or whoever, and you mm-hmm. could learn how the things were made and you could get over that dang speed bump that we talk about. We tried to get all of the, the printmaking students up from MICA to, we would hire them to help the each gallery install and so that they would form connections with various entities that, that later on they could have a internship with or fellowship or whatever. We're just trying to make all of those connections within the print ecosystem and it was hugely successful. I think I had the best time. I mean, it was the best part of the job for sure. The print fair was yeah. so much fun. Yeah. And so in 2017, the new director decided not to, I mean, he never said anything, but they just never did it again. And so I, yeah. as a, I left the museum in 2017 and I sort of sat and watched and finally found two people that could realize it with me, Brian Miller and Julie Funderburg, who are not print people at all. They are they have a gallery in town that's not necessarily print at all. They don't mm. do print at all, actually. And they were just interested in, you know, they'd always been interested in doing a, an art fair of some sort. And I just think I just brought the print part to it. And so together yeah. we brought we got this thing going. So we'll do it again next year and expand it and add some more booze. We had 22 this time. I think we're going to move up to 30 booze and, you know, we're going to make it a thing. Having done print fairs and having done art fairs, print fairs are way more fun, way nicer people. (laughs) 
And they're so excited about what they're doing that they will talk to you. And you can go up to people who are doing like Walton Ford's etchings at Wingate Studio and just have a conversation about what is that? How did that happen? And that's an incredible experience, I think. Yeah. 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 And Peter and James Pettengill, who run Wingate Studio mm-hmm. Prop, before they came, I was chatting with them and I said, could you, I knew they happened to have these things. I said, could you bring some Walton Ford proofs so that pe- you can show people the process with the multi-plate oh, color nice. and uh-huh. all that stuff? Yeah. So, so a bunch of people brought either plates or proofs so that they could further the conversation on, on what printmaking is all about. Yeah. Yeah. And again, not to beat my metaphor into the ground, but it's, <laughs> it's the playing the gin rummy, like the seeing the proof is the coming to understand. And I've seen this on people's faces that, oh my God, that's what you do to get these images. And that is such a fun moment to see and to share and I think to experience. Well, the other thing is that you can't, when you go to museums, wherever you are traveling, like I always go into the museum and I'm always taking a mental note of how many prints are on the walls. And Uh, the answer uh is usually, you know, less than a quarter of a half of a percent or something. It's never more than a single room, or maybe they're scattered around. When you go into a print fair, it's like the biggest print exhibition you could ever hope to see, right? Like you have Mm -hmm. 22 booths, and some of them have skied all of their stuff. Like there's just covered, it's covered with prints. And you get every medium, every technique, mono, you know, everything. It's just such a celebration of a a secret society somehow. I'm like, it's going to be secret. Come on, people. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the secret society that doesn't want to be secret, but it is. Right. Like, right. <laughs> well, the other thing I think people don't quite gather is that when you think back to 1455, when Gutenberg finally figures out how to print the Bible, right? That that's the beginning of the printing thing. Every image that you would see in those early years was a printed image. The you wouldn't see images on billboards or on your phone mm-hmm. at that point. So prints were that era's internet. Really? Yeah. And so the history of prints is the history of our shared visual culture in the end. And I Mm. think that people, like somehow that link, is that hop from one puddle to another is missing. Like they can't quite, I think everybody just takes images for granted now. And the the truth is it it took a lot of hard work to get those out there. And prints were really the way to spread things far and wide. So mm-hmm. no, yep. I I really connect with everything you're saying there, and part of the reason why I am so interested in the history and 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 so forever shouting from the rooftops as best I can to get try to get other people excited about it is because the, it is what visual culture was for a very long time. Maybe we can dive into plate mark just to make sure we've got time. So we've got two seasons. You've got a a co-host in each season and a different focus for the two seasons. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit of the run up to starting it and and how you went about it. And then the two seasons, I think that they're great resources. So please let people know about them. Yeah, thank you. When I left the museum, I had this idea in my brain, being, being a podcaster should be fun. Like maybe I could be a podcaster. But then I couldn't really figure out how that would work with visual information. Like how do you how do you do a podcast yeah, audio, yeah. right? 
But then when the pandemic, then the shutdown hit and I started writing and I started writing, posting usually to Facebook and then I started blog and they were all reminiscences about objects that I had purchased for the museum's collection or had failed to purchase for the museum's collection, even though I pitched them and I was denied or whatever. And it was, it was sort of a walk down memory lane but I really, I don't know, with, through that writing process, I thought, you know what? I have things to say. <laughs> and so I talked to my friend, Ben Levy, who had worked with me at the museum, BM, the BMA for six years, because he's one of the smartest, like, I don't know how that kid's brain works. I just don't understand. Mm-hmm. He's so, such a different thinker than me. We had had these coffee talks every morning at the museum. Not, I mean, we weren't drinking coffee. We're just sitting there like chit-chatting about the business and about what was wrong with the you know, administration and why we couldn't get this done and wouldn't uh-huh. it be cool if we could do this. And, and I just thought, you know, let's, let's see if we can come up with eight topics, talk about them for an hour and see what happens. And so the very first one we started was about critiques and studio visits. And it's mm-hmm. still to this day, the most popular one, which I find hilarious because we didn't know what we were doing. And that was the first one. <laughs> And, but we just, you know, started talking about what I think the overarching thing for me and what I'm trying to get across in that first series in particular, well, in both actually, is, is dispelling the idea of the scary curator in the marble Mm. facaded building in the Mm -hmm. ivory tower with their doors shut. Like that's not the gatekeeper, like the quintessential gate, like literally someone whose job it is to decide what gets in and what gets out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of problems with the way museums are structured, but, (laughs) (laughs) but for, for, it seems to me that there are two kinds of curators. There's the kind that wants to take deep dives into some subject, produce a book, produce a show, and move on. And then there's people who, like me, who was the host in the study room, who was dealing with classes, that was more interested in making art and art history less difficult, <laughs> easier to understand, and connecting people with their first experience. So I always talked about um, the print study room in the department being the third front door of the museum. The BMA has the big Greek facade up at the top of the stairs. And then there's a a new entrance that's ADA accessible. So there's two front doors. The third front door is having your teacher bring you into a class and your class up to the study room. And I felt super strongly that that first, because it was often their first experience in a museum, that that first experience should be positive and not scary Mm -hmm. and not intimidating. And that if we can dispel this idea that I don't belong in that building, that we can get people over that damn speed speed bump, right? It's all about getting Mm -hmm. people over the speed bump. (laughs) Yeah, the I don't belong in that building feeling around a lot, a lot of Americans is very I know. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I feel really strongly that that there's, well, of course, I think I'm right about it. And you shouldn't be (laughs) right in your office doing research. But I mean, if, if we all are getting behind the mission that, art is for everybody. And that's mm-hmm. sort of the bottom line, right? That we have to make it easier. So by talking about critiques and studio visits, our goal was to let people in with how we thought about approaching that situation. And my nervousness, like I, Ben took me down to MICA to do critiques with the senior printmaking to students at MICA the Maryland Institute College of Art. Mm-hmm. And I had never done critiques before. Now, mm. Ben had gone through the magnet art schools all the way up through to MICA. He'd graduated from MICA in 2009. He'd done critiques from the age of 12 or something. So we go down to MICA, and I don't confess it at the time, but on the podcast, I'm like, so I was really nervous because I didn't know what I was doing. And I didn't uh-huh. know if I could 
process what I was seeing fast enough to say something helpful. Right. And so I was, yeah. right? Like, mm-hmm. I, was, I, <laughs> so <laughs> I was just kind of admitting my own foibles about it and hoping that I could convey the fact that we're all people. I have a cool job. I'm coming to talk to you about your work and I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying mm-hmm. to be helpful. And so to not get everything all twisted up in some scary thing. So that was yeah. my goal. Yeah. Yeah. So the the rest of the first series of Plate Mark tackles things like market value and conceptual value and how you judge those things and who judges those things. And we even got into decolonization and all of the issues with management and collections and the whole structure of the enterprise. And what else did we talk about? Oh, and then we got into the print ecosystem, which was super fun. <laughs> Yeah, I love yeah. the print ecosystem. Mm, totally. You know, yeah. So we talked about the fairs and stuff. So there's some good stuff in there, I think, that could be useful for young artists to listen to. And then I decided that we should get True on record for his History of Prince class because he is no longer teaching it. We taught it together for 15 years, I think it was. And through a ver- variety of reasons, he's not teaching it anymore. And nobody teaches history of prints better. I will I will lay my life on the line on that one. <laughs> I mean, you talk about making art history accessible. Like True's style is very irreverent. Like he was dealing with very sleepy art history students and the class was three and a half hours long and, you know, they had to be rattled awake. So there was we we're always pointing out the sexy prints and the, the boobs mm-hmm. and the butts and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, that's the fun part. Yep. Right, right. And just trying to convey the history, but through a way that was more engaging. So I have talked him into committing to doing this history of prints through series two of Plate Mark. And we've just finished with Rembrandt mm. and had to do three episodes on Rembrandt. He True talk for four hours about Rembrandt. <laughs> I love that so much. Yeah. <laughs> oh, like it's, yeah, that is, yeah, that is a print person right there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So we've come up to Rembrandt. I think we're going to take a little hiatus during the summer and, and I'm going to put some different episodes in there from other aspects of, of the print ecosystem while True recovers from his last year of teaching because <laughs> teaching in the pandemic is no fun. Oh, yeah, and, for sure. Yeah, I was also thought right. you were going to say recovers from talking for four hours about Rembrandt. Yeah, it's like a <laughs> marathon. <laughs> well, it's funny. Like when I when I suggested that we do the history of Prince, I had I did not intend for him to to take deep dives into each of these eras or people or whatever. Like I I just thought we could run through the class as we did and talk about what we did and keep going. And of course, true is a a connoisseur of information and uh-huh. as, as curious a person as I've ever met. And so every time we do an episode or three, if it extends that long, you know, there's been a deep dive. So there's a lot of prep work that has to happen. So it's, it's become more of a thing than I was hoping it would be. I mean, mm. if you know what I mean, in prep. Work absolutely. Time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that I could say that like about this podcast that I, I love doing though. Like you get this little bee in your bonnet of what would be a fun project and then, and then it gets away from you and then you're like, wow, this is my life now. <laughs> yeah. The visual part is, is challenging. I'm sure people are like, well, they're talking about looking at something on their screen and I can't see it. 
But I have diligently put all of the images we talk about up on the show notes page at platemarkpodcast.com. So if you're sitting there listening mm-hmm. to it, you can follow along or you can refer back later if you're driving or something. That is super exciting. So everyone, for sure, check out the podcast. That's amazing that you're going through all the effort of, of putting images online, for sure. But you... Do not stop there. You're like, no, no, no. One podcast is not enough for Anne. You also have one called The Curator's Choice. Would you chat about that? So a couple of things happened. One, I have a very dear friend who said, you don't need a co-host. Mm. <laughs> you should be standing on your own. And I thought, okay, fine. I'll, I'll start one that's just me. So The Curator's Choice is just me talking and it's it's really branching off of all of those blog posts that I wrote early in the shutdown about favorite works of art that I brought into the collection. So I'll take one. I, the first one I did was on Allison Schatz, a, a set of three prints that I acquired from Carolina Nitsch years ago and just talked about them and talked about other works of hers that inform it or that I really love and why basically is how I would pitch it to my colleagues at the museum. This is what I would say to prove to them that this was worth bringing into the collection for however many Mm -hmm. dollars it was. Can't remember. So they're short. Some of them are shorter than others. And they're just sort of me musing, but I, I know it's a little intimidating being yourself on a microphone, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. So the intimidation factor is kind of weird. I don't know. I, so I, I stopped doing it when the whole print fair thing started revving up and, and I plan to get back to it this summer as things ease up. So Great. Well, before we sign off, would you please tell me and tell our listeners where they can find all of this great things that you are putting out in the world from the print fair. And I know we, we talked a little bit about the plate mark website, but just make a list of where can they find you? Where can they find the podcast? Where can they find your projects? Where can they follow you to get updates on everything Anne's up to? I know. I feel like I'm like all over the place, like a spaghetti mess or something. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty active on Instagram and in the bio there, I have one of those link tree sort of things that will shoot you off to various places. But mm-hmm. the the gist of it is my own personal website, which is where the blog lives, is annschafer.com. And Schaefer is spelled weird, everybody. There's no C, no E. It's annschafer.com. <laughs> and, and there's platemarkpodcast.com. That's where all of the show notes are and the images for the episodes for the history of prints. Mm-hmm. The print fair webpage was designed and enacted by my partner, Julie Funderburg, who did a fantastic job. And she she worked diligently on it. It's baltimoreprintfair.com. And one of the side things that we did leading up to the fair was I interviewed as many of the vendors who were willing to be interviewed on video. Oh, nice. Yeah. And so there's videos of me talking with the Pettengills, for instance, or with Jim Kempner, or with Chris Santamaria from Gemini, or Julia Samuels from Overpass Projects. And they live on a Baltimore Print Fair YouTube channel. So there's a bunch of- Oh, very cool. Yeah. They turned out really well. So interestingly for some of your listeners- the things that I asked them were the basic, like, tell me about you and about the shop or your gallery or whatever it is you're representing, but also what you're excited to bring to Baltimore, which isn't evergreen, but so be it. But also, 
if I'm an artist, how do I work with you? Yes, that is definitely what people want to hear. So on each of them, I asked each of them, like, do you like cold calls? Do you is mm. email best? And Jim Kempner said it, he was so funny because some of them are like, yeah, I love a cold call or yeah, talk to me at the print fair. And some of them are like, do not approach me at a print fair <laughs> if I'm in the middle of a sale. But Jim Kempner said, if I open up an email and there's not a wow image Front and center, I'm off to the next thing. Like you have to, yeah. so you have to lead with the the, the power shot. So <laughs> there's some advice in those videos. Absolutely. I mean, that sounds like a great resource that I'm sure a lot of people will will want to go to. So, and yeah. I'm assuming there's a link to the YouTube on the main website, or that it's all findable through that or through the Google the, machine. Yeah. The I think how Julie has it set up that you you can click on each of the vendors and on their specific page, their the YouTube video is sitting right there and you can do it that way. Or you can go up to YouTube and find us there. Cool. Well, we'll yeah. definitely put links and all of that in the show notes. And uh, Anne, thank you so much for joining me and and making this just a really fun conversation and for your podcaster technical advice that you happened off of air that is going to change the way I do podcasting forever. <laughs> and I, yes. um, I let it be helpful. <laughs> and I, I really hope that I can come see you and Baltimore and the print fair again sometime because I, I just I, I love prints. I love Baltimore and I've loved talking with you. Well, thank you. Yeah, the, I just have to say one last thing about the fair. The Baltimore Print Fair is now the only con- all contemporary fair in the country because EAB Editions and Artist Books is is not running this year. Okay. So, so all of those sort of mid level people that aren't members of the IFPDA have nowhere to show, really. Mm-hmm. So next year, I think we're going to be sort of hitting our stride. So, <laughs> look for our announcement of our dates, and we will we will pull it off again. Wonderful. Yeah. So definitely take heed, print friends. That I think this sounds like it's going to be a great event. What? And you were thinking it'll be in the same time, like early May. Next year? I think it's going to, it's going to, I think, scooch back into April some. Oh. We're, look, we're looking at two weekends, but we will, we will announce it shortly, hopefully. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, Anne. You are very welcome. If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. Like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. And if you've listened this far, you might be that special kind of print friend who would leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. It would mean the world to us if you did. No joke, it really does make an impact in this podcasting space. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Brian Wagner, who you may know from their fantastic Instagram handle, Hedgebitch. We talk about going to Tamarind in the autumn of 2020 in the heart of the COVID pandemic, witchery and lithography, bootstrapping lithography into your life after grad school, and rural queerness. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.